0: So, I'm going to continue some ideas from my last podcast. I'm tuk- tuk- tucked away in the background of the, in the back corner of the food court here at the Washington Convention Center on uh, the 14th of December, 2005, at 2.11 p.m. So, I'm on at 3. I got a little bit of time beforehand. And I wanted to sort of go over some ideas that I mentioned in my last podcast before I was interrupted by the, the housekeeper and just talk a little bit about. The problem of incentives within a violent uh, system. Um, <clears throat> so the the problem with violence is that violence always creates a win lose environment. I mean, we all all know that uh, if someone's going to steal your Rolex, it's not like they've made a new Rolex, they've gained a Rolex, and you have lost your Rolex. Uh, the same thing is true for you know uh, the government in particular. I mean, if if I get uh, a particular a federal grant, uh, you are not getting that money. Now, of course, the government can always print more uh, to pay both of us, but all of that means is that the um, the future generations or whoever is going to inherit all that public debt or whoever is going to pay for the inflation loses their money. The only thing that contributes to the growth of goods and services within the economy is trade and being able to do more with the same amount of time right so the the question of profit is 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 complicated but you know suffice it to say here that if i can produce one widget an hour by hand and then i spend 10 hours creating a machine which allows me to produce two widgets an hour in perpetuity uh, you know after uh, 10 uh, after 10 or so hours everything after that is pure gravy and i now have more with the same amount of time and energy that I did before. I mean, it's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but the only thing that creates a win-win situation is (coughs) investments which improve productivity over time or over energy. So again, not not to get too technical on the economics of it, the important thing to remember is that if it's not (coughs) an investment which is voluntary to supply a product or service that the market desires, which is also voluntary, then it is a zero-sum game or a net-sum game so I steal from Peter to pay Paul, Um, there is a net loss, because not only have I taken $100, say, from Peter to pay Paul, but the labor that I could have contributed to the economy, if I were not doing something as slimy as stealing money, has also been lost to the economy. So, not only does Peter lose $100 and Paul gains $100, but... The time that I might have spent in a productive endeavor which I've now spent stealing is also lost to the economy so it's a it's a net loss overall so that's an important point to remember when looking at uh, violence and you know I mean I'm sort of focusing a little on violence rather than the state here because it's a little easier to understand with somebody who grabs your sneakers than with somebody who is uh, say printing money and and creating national debts but uh, violence uh, is always is a negative-sum game, which is why, of course, um, societies which rely on violence, and this, of course, is most of the world except for the West, and most of the West except for the last 250 years or 200 years or so, those societies which rely on violence are those societies which remain poor. I mean, there really is no, <laughs> at least to me, uh, because I'm not a think tank that is paid to overcomplicate things, there's no great mystery to the problem of poverty within the world. Poverty is simply created by violence. Poverty is exacerbated by violence. And unfortunately, the violence in Western civilizations, uh, through taxation, is funding the violence in other civilizations or non-civilizations if it's a violent state, say, in in Africa or in in the Middle East. The violence here funds the violence there, and thus poverty uh, generally tends to increase. So, of course, then the question is, why uh, does violence uh, why is violence ever an option or why is it ever preferred right well <laughs> violence is analogous to uh, drug use in my uh, opinion and and this is one reason why it's to me kind of ironic that the government tries to control drug use when it's addicted to violence money power and and corruption but um, if you uh, you know there are two paths to happiness I guess you could say one is to live a moral life and be a good person and um, be courageous and be virtuous and all of that good stuff, and that's time-consuming and difficult. Much like uh, getting into shape is time-consuming and difficult. The rewards are great. The level of difficulty is not uh, is not minimal. So uh, the other route to happiness is you can just uh, take a nice uh, juicy hit of heroin. Uh, now I myself never tried any drugs of any kind. I was a smoker for a little while, and and uh, I like a glass of wine from time to time, but. I've never even tried marijuana or anything like that. I just uh, feel that I have kind of a good ra- racehorse between my ears and I don't want to steroid it up in any way. So um, you can, of course, choose to just forget about uh, being a virtuous person and just take drugs. And I can certainly understand that perspective. I really can. I mean, if I had, if uh, uh, my doctor phoned me tomorrow and said, uh, Steph, my boy, you've only got. Uh, a week to live well yeah i'd be kind of tempted i gotta tell you you know they say that uh, you know uh, uh, crack or or heroin is like a thousand times better than your best orgasm so uh, you know the part of my life plan is to wait until i'm very old and then start trying all this stuff when it doesn't matter to my health anymore but, so that having been said i can certainly understand why people would be interested in um just wait there's a bit of a rumbling here as they take a cut but do, 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 do. Okay, So I can certainly understand why people would be interested in uh, taking drugs if they're in a particular situation where they only have a short amount of time to live or, you know, they're in an enormous amount of pain. I mean, I hope that there's going to be lots of morphine around when I get old and sick and, you know, I'm on my deathbed. So, you know, drugs are a perfectly valid approach to particular kinds of problems. It's just that, you know, if you're like 20, 30, 40 or 50 years old you don't particularly want to get (coughs) into the situation where you get addicted to something which is going to ruin your life for the next, you know, 40 or 50 years. So, I would say that uh, these sort of two approaches to happiness: one is short-term chemical and one is long-term virtue. Uh, You know, pretty much, unless you're in a very unusual situation or, you know, about to die, you want to go with the long-term virtue rather than the short-term chemical. So, (coughs) with that not too subtle metaphor in place, we can actually have a look at what violence does. You know, if you want to make money, you can either take the the long and difficult route, (coughs) excuse me, which is to, you know, go to school and learn stuff and, you know, figure out the market, figure out what people want, invest your own money, put your house up for mortgage, work 60 hours a week and so on, and, you know, then maybe you can make a lot of money. Uh, Or you can uh, become a thief you know, there's a certain amount of technical skills involved in becoming a thief, but it's not really comparable to what it takes to run a business or even uh, perform at a high-level job. So, in the short run, for a specific or particular individual, there are enormous benefits, right? And so that is something that uh, is important to remember when it comes to violence. This is also true for the government. If you are a farmer and, you know, you need or you feel that you need sort of federal subsidies because the price of crops goes up and down and foreign governments subsidize their farmers and there's weather and all this kind of stuff, then, you know, it's certainly to your benefit to actually um, lobby the government to get the money and suck it away in your bank account. (coughs) Is it ever to your detriment in the long run? Well, yes, of course, to some degree it is. Uh, You know, assuming that you have some degree of affection towards your children, uh, it's probably not that great to uh, dump uh, a mammoth load of, of debt into their uh, hands. Uh, also, I- assuming that you have some, again, some affection for your children, it's probably not too great to bequeath to them a political system of, you know, basically legalized civil war, you know, with ever-shrinking liberties and, and so on. But in the short run, you know, it's it's money in the bank, baby. It's cash. It's good stuff. So I think that is, 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 is a very important part of understanding, you know, why uh, government power tends to grow, that for certain specific individuals in the short run, it's enormously beneficial. And, you know, to some degree, human beings do only think in the short run. Um, I mean, that's an arguable position, and there's, you know, people who will argue otherwise, and that's fine. I mean, the whole proposition that I'm talking about doesn't rest on that, but uh, certainly uh, people, when you offer them money and they don't have to work for it, and they can just go and cash it, and they don't have to uh, stick a gun in anybody's face, Uh, they uh, will take it. I mean, they absolutely will. So, I think it's helpful to understand that particular perspective on violence, to understand the government. I think another thing to understand why uh, violence in the form of the government is so bad is the following. Most people are peaceful. And I say this even though they talk about their love of Iraq, w- the war in Iraq, or they, they talk about their, their love of government subsidies, or they talk about the need to you know, give checks to people on welfare or whatever. I mean, that's all well and good, and that's all theoretical. But most people, most people, by far the majority of people, are not at all comfortable using violence to achieve their ends. I mean, this is assuming that they haven't grown up in some sort of Nicaraguan Heid or Haitian scary death camp society where you know they're given a gun when they're 10 and their mother is killed in front of them and all this kind of stuff You know, which obviously messes up the psyche quite a bit but on average people are generally very peaceful and this is one of the main reasons why the government or the growth of government power is so dangerous is that it allows people to be violent or to gain the effects of violence without themselves having to perform that violence. I mean, a classic example, which I think I got from Harry Brown, is if you are somebody who feels that their rent should only go up 3% a year, uh, and your landlord raises it 6%, you can either um, you know, go down to your landlord's apartment, knock on his door, put a gun in his face, and say, you better damn well not raise my rent more than 3% or I'm gonna shoot you. Uh, and most people, of course, not particularly comfortable with that. Um, for a number of reasons, some of which are moral and some of which are practical. The moral one is that nobody really feels; very few people feel very good about doing, uh, performing that level of violence. The practical one, of, co- of course, is that your landlord might have a gun too, so you know you're not going to really enjoy, uh, or the risk of going down to uh, threaten him with a gun. And of course, you can't perpetually enforce it because you know. If you're going to declare a state of nature against your landlord, he can just kick you out. He can turn the heat off in your apartment. He can just raise the rent later. He can walk away from the apartment building. I mean, there's lots of ways in which violence is impractical. uh, But the fact of the matter is, the point of this part uh, part of my conversation is to say that people don't really feel comfortable using violence. And that's one of the ways in which violence, in the absence of an institution like the state, does not generally... um, play a very great role in society. So, when you put a law in place, what's actually happening is you are taking violence off your radar, taking the violence that is required to achieve your goals off your radar. You're outsourcing the gun, so to speak. So, if you lobby City Hall and get them to say, well, no landlord can raise... The rents more than 3% a year, sort of, you know, the, the rent control paradigm, then what's happened is you have gained all of the benefits of keeping your rent low. You have absolved, absolved yourself of the moral horror of putting a gun into somebody's face. And you have also eliminated the risk of retribution or retaliation from the landlord. Now, of course, you've only done that in the short run because in the long run, uh, as we've seen in places like New York uh, during the 70s and 80s when rent control just went completely nuts, um, <clears throat> when the costs of running a building um, are largely um, uh, largely greater than the cost of the revenue that can be gained from renting it out, uh, people just abandon their buildings, right? I mean, <clears throat> it's kind of ironic to me that the government says... Uh, you can't uh, raise your rents, and then also raises your property taxes. I mean, it's inevitable, uh, because violence always grows and corrupts and uh, destroys society, but it's kind of funny that, you know, of course they're going to end up with these bombed-out sections of town. I think some social one social commentator whose name escapes me said that there's, you know, short of, of mass bombing, there's no better way to destroy a city than through rent control. Right, you raise the rents. Oh, sorry, you keep the rents low. You raise property taxes, and um, of course, uh, you know you're going to end up with very little rental space. Now, of course, the people who then have rental space already are doing great through that situation. They're doing very well because they can hang on to really cheap our places, and then they can then get money under the table, or what used to be called key money in New York. They would basically get bribes to transfer the uh, apartment building or the apartment itself, uh, so that. Rents could not be raised. Right? Rents would be raised if the ownership changed. So they'd pretend the person was still living there, but you know they would then change the owners if the person died, and you'd pay twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars for this privilege. Uh, so you know the people who actually have property before the the, uh, the the portcullis of government regulation comes down actually end up doing very well out of that. Um, that's also the case, as you know or probably know, with zoning. Right? I mean, uh, if you have a um, a house that is overlooking a ravine in a sparsely populated area, that house is going to be worth a lot as the uh, city grows, right? So you buy a house 20 kilometers or 20 miles out of town, it's in a sparsely populated area, you don't pay that much uh, for your house, right? Because the commute is too long, there aren't enough businesses around you, so the overall value of your house is, is not that great. However, as the city grows, right, your, uh, the value of your house is going to go up briefly, and then it's going to begin to go down again as more and more people build in your neighborhood, right, so you might have had a, um, a nice ravine view uh, of woods going off into the uh, distance when you bought the house, but then as the city grows, what happens is you end up with, with overlooking a construction yard, overlooking somebody else's um uh, backyard, overlooking a house, the ravine might be, uh, you know, clear-cut or whatever, so the value of your house is going to go down again as more and more people move into the neighborhood. Now, most people, of course, aren't comfortable going and setting fire to a construction, that a construction of a house that's blocking their view of the ravine or is on the other side of the ravine, they're not comfortable with, you know, shooting construction workers, but if they can go to the government and get zoning laws passed, then they maintain the value of their house. In fact, they increase it significantly because now it's in a highly populated area and still has lots of elbow room and a great view. So they gain all of the benefits of using violence without any of the risks of retaliation and without any of the moral uh, disgust or horror of having to perform it themselves. So that's sort of another example of how when violence becomes... um, uh, institutionalized, so to speak, then the gains of violence uh, will always be there and will tend to increase. But the the the, uh, the negative aspects of violence, i.e., the, the the retaliation and the moral horror of pointing a gun at someone directly, they're all eliminated. Right. So, given that you have created a situation where violence is rewarded and the costs of violence are eliminated of course you're going to see a situation where violence is going to continue to grow and grow and grow until the consequences of violence are now so great that the entire structure of society is going to collapse. Um, This sort of reminds me when I was a kid. I read a great explanation for pain uh, because, you know, you'd you'd hit your thumb with a hammer or you'd fall... Uh, out of a tree you were climbing, and it would hurt like the dickens, and you'd go, my man, this sucks. I know I've fallen out of a tree. What do I need all this pain for? And I can't remember where I read it. I mean, I was very, very young, but it really has stuck with me over the years as a pretty good metaphor for uh, a lot of things other than you know, physical pain. And the way it went was this. The, the guy was writing and said, well, look, if you're climbing a tree, um, and you climb past a wasp's nest, and you don't see it, Right? and you, you can't feel any physical pain, then what's going to happen? Well, you're going to keep climbing the tree, and you're going to hang out in the tree, and you're going to practice your bird calls or whatever, look for ro- uh, robin's nests. But the problem is that the wasps that you have disturbed are stinging you in your butt or in your back or in your legs or whatever. You may not be. You know, let's just say you can't see them or whatever. Now, you're going to keep climbing despite the fact that you're being stung and you will have no biofeedback to say, look, something's wrong, I'm being stung here, I better get out of this damn tree. And what's going to happen is that you're going to keep climbing and keep climbing, the wasps are going to keep stinging you until their venom overwhelms your neurological system and you uh, fall out of the tree in a coma or you, know, you, you fall unconscious and you're going to die or you're going to be incredibly badly injured right? Coming down out of a tree when you're 50 or 75 feet up when you're completely unconscious is probably not a very good strategy for survival and I think that that is an excellent, excellent metaphor for the problem of violence as well. People don't generally like being violent because the retaliation, and to me the fear of retaliation is a pretty small aspect of people's disdain or distaste for violence. Uh, People just can't look in the mirror Most people can't look in the mirror and say, yeah, I had a good day today where they went around and stuck guns in people's faces and, you know, blew other people away and, you know, kidnapped and robbed and maimed and whatever, right? Um, So the reason that institutionalized violence is so dangerous is that not only does it accrue the benefits of violence to people who experience neither the moral horror nor the risk, but it also causes violence to spread and spread and spread to such a degree that society itself, to pull back to my metaphor, falls out of the tree and is destroyed. So I think that is a, a very important aspect of violence or, or the state to remember when you're having a look at the paper or, or talking about things with people and why the argument from morality is so important. The argument from effect or the argument from efficiency doesn't work, does not work in the absence of the argument from morality because the state system is very more, oh, sorry very efficient to certain people if you want to keep the value of your house then you want to make sure that you can apply to city hall and get uh, zoning put in place so that nobody can build near you that's very efficient to you economically you profit from that because the costs of violence are all outsourced to the police and the law courts and you uh, simply maintain the value of your property without having to lift a finger other than to, you know, do some political organization, sign some petitions or whatever. So that particular issue, uh, it doesn't work with people when you say it's economically inefficient to have a government, it's nonsense. You know, for certain people, at a purely material, from a purely material standpoint, it's enormously efficient to have a government in the short to medium run. Right. In, the, in the long run, of course, society collapses, they're miserable, their kids uh, have uh, wretched lives and so on. But, you know, that's really not how people make decisions, right? I mean, if, if I come to you and say, I'm going to give you $50,000, but there's a risk that in 30 years, uh, you know, there may be some inflation. You know, I mean, just to take an example, you're going to take the check. I mean, there are maybe six people in the world who are... Uh, moral enough and I'm not sure that I'm one of them <laughs> to reject that on the basis of look uh, I don't want people a generation from now to have an extra percentage of inflation just so I can have my $50,000 uh, that's really not how things work um, and of course you can take that money and invest it and recoup a lot more than out of that whole situation than people will ever lose out of even that your kids will ever lose out of that one percentage point increase I mean, I'm just making up numbers but I think you get the point And that's why, in the absence of the argument for morality, uh, people simply are unconvinced of the virtue of getting rid of the government or, you know, to take a less anarchistic and more libertarian approach uh, of minimizing the power that it is able to to wield. Because if we say, well, capitalism is more efficient, then that's true, of course, for society as a whole and in the long run, but for very specific people, uh, it is absolutely much more economically efficient To manipulate the political process than it is to rely on the free market and last but not least um, the people who will have to decide whether or not to change the system to say lower the prevalence of government power are the very people who are profiting the most from government power and so that's why that's never going to happen you can't go to a politician and say you need to limit government power when a politician's entire salary and pension schemes are derived from the uh, institutionalization of violence that the state represents. Uh, similarly, uh, lawyers you know, gain an enormous amount of benefit from the current uh, rather messy system of, of litigation and tort law. And, of course, they're not going to be the ones who are going to up and say, yeah, I would sure love to cut my income by about two-thirds uh, to allow people who are simply eloquent and logical to argue court cases rather than have a monopoly on it And that seems like an excellent position. I will definitely work night and day to invalidate the value of my education and to ensure that I can no longer get uh, very expensive settlements from the cases that I'm trying. Uh, It's absolutely impossible. I mean, there's no way that you can ever rely on that uh, ever happening. It would be fantasy land to imagine it ever could. However, the one hold that we do have on people is that they don't feel comfortable using violence. Very few people feel comfortable using violence. Um, Sociopaths are extraordinarily rare, Um, and uh, so the one thing that we can always have a hold on people is to say that it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to take money, it's wrong to use violence, and people still agree with that in current society. Even the people who are older, who are benefiting from the system, still appeal to virtue, right? All the government does is appeal to virtue. Not efficiency. You will occasionally see arguments like, "Well, it's cheaper to have socialized healthcare than the American system, or whatever." But those are all tertiary, um, because the the danger with those arguments is that then you can compare the current healthcare system to the one from 40 years ago in America or Canada, and see that the modern ones are so much more expensive. So most people um, still feel very uncomfortable with the idea of approving of violence, and that's where, of course, we can um, have the greatest effect in conversing with people get them to understand that that it's wrong to use violence to solve social problems, that it's wrong to have uh, certain people have the right to use violence. And then we can also point out that by giving certain people all of the benefits of using violence and none of the drawbacks, we are actually causing uh, or creating a system where violence can do nothing but increase and increase and increase until it destroys society as a whole. I have found that to be somewhat effective in getting people to understand why this issue is so important. Alrighty, 2.36pm. I guess I had better uh, start getting ready for my presentation. So I hope this has been helpful, and thanks again for listening.